Today's topic. Today's topic is Ganon. The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. Garden of Amuna. The way to get into the Garden of Eden. Which is, why won't God let me succeed? I don't know if you did or didn't read the piece in the book. But by now I hope you figured out that the reason I send out the title, which is a direct title from one of the pieces of the book, is so that you people can read it before you get here, because here we're going to discuss it. We're not going to actually read it, okay? So please, guys, send out a title. Just read the little piece. They're very small pieces, and then we can talk about it. So you will read over there that he asks a question, why won't God let me succeed? And he goes ahead and he presents a list of different reasons why. What is Hashem doing? What I'm looking for here is not to go over each of those reasons, because each of those reasons in itself could be a shiur. What I'm actually looking for is to find one fundamental reason that would help with all those reasons. We're looking for the one underlying fundamental reason of why won't God let me succeed. Then please go back and reread those reasons. And we can discuss those reasons, each one, later in further lectures. But what I wanted to do this time was read that piece. There's always got to be one underlying nishama that expresses everything else. What is the underlying piece, reason? What, what are we saying here? Why won't God let me succeed? So before I do that, I need to back up a moment. Because the question itself is very dangerous. Why won't God let me succeed? Who says God that doesn't let you succeed? I mentioned before in the previous class that famous joke they say this guy was praying for years and years and years God I have 12 kids and I have a leak in the roof and my wife and my this and my dad please I need to win the lottery and the angels turned to God and said please don't you see Yanko is years already come on he's a good man why can't you let him win the lottery? And as you know, God turns around to the angels and said, why don't you tell him to buy a ticket? So the question over here is, we use too quickly, why won't God let me succeed? I'm not so sure it's God that's not letting you succeed. Which in itself I mentioned once before is a huge topic of God's blessing and not in God's blessing and my effort. We need to know how that waltz works because it is an amazing waltz. Don't be so quick to say, God doesn't let me succeed. It's a tikkun that I'm meant to be poor. It's a tikkun, God forbid, that I'm meant to be single. It's a tikkun, God forbid, that I'm meant to not have... That's, don't be so quick to say those words. But the bottom line is that the title in the book in that chapter is Why Won't God Let Me Succeed? So I don't want to get into that underlying conversation which I'm sure we'll have many times in the upcoming series. We will talk about this it's a huge question. Does God ever say no in prayer? But there is a story in the Talmud. And with this story in the Talmud, I'm going to leave this piece of the topic and go further. I just want to justify the title. Why won't God let me succeed? There is a story in the Talmud of a famous sage who prayed to God for money. He was, he was just poverty. He was getting in the way of his studying and everything. And at one point, God told him, Stop. Because if you're not going to stop... I'm going to have to redo whole creation because the way creation is set up, you are not meant to be rich. But if you're going to push the issue, I'm going to have to do what you want me to do. And then I have to reset up all the way back from Genesis. The reset button. <laughs> Reboot. 
So it's interesting, very interesting, and that causes a lot of questions, and we can use that the wrong way. So I don't want to get into that whole topic, which really is a lecture for itself. I've given that lecture before, and I'm sure we'll be giving many more lectures on that topic. But I just wanted to use that as just a justification. So God did tell him that the way the system is set up now, he wasn't meant to be rich. Interesting. But right now, let's talk about the question, why won't God let me succeed? Again, a huge acceptance that it is God that's not letting me succeed right now. But let's leave it at that. Let's start with the foundation to this question. The foundation of the question is, God is good and God does good. If God is good and God does good, then why, right? Famous question. If life is above the cherries, why am I in the pits? If God is good and God does good, then why am I not succeeding? So the first approach of emunah is, God is good, God does good. Which allows me to ask this question. Because if you don't have that prerequisite of emuna that God is good and God does good, then this question is fatal. Because God doesn't love me. Yada yada. It's interesting. I'm reading a book, a uh, secular book, called The System That Never Fails by Clement Stone. People heard this name from me a couple of times already here. And in one chapter, he writes how in 1939, he faced the worst crisis he ever had. By that point, he had a thousand salespeople. He ran an insurance company, yada, yada. And he faced the worst crisis ever. He got a piece of mail that told him that he will no more be representing this company. And they will not be renewing any of his um, policies. And that meant to him total. It's interesting. He writes there what he did. You'll read the chapter. Read the book, by the way. It's a great book to read. But one thing hit me as I'm preparing the class of the Garden of Amuna, he writes, the first thing he did was he got down on his knees and prayed. But the first meditation he had when he went into prayer, he was not Jewish, but a believer. He said, the first thing I said was, God is good and God does good. That allowed me to pray. Without that, I can't even pray to God. Without that, all I see is doomsday. So the first thing I need to do before I even engage with God is, to bring forth Amuna. God is good and God does good. Now I understand, A, this isn't bad. Minus Friedman has a line. <laughs> it might be sad, but it's not bad. But the bottom line here is it's not bad. There's got to be a kernel of growth and opportunity in this. Without Amuna, I can't even see that. With Amuna, I can now pray for guidance and help and blessings to crack the shell, get to the kernel, and bring it all good. So before we even start anything, we need to understand that this lecture is founded on an unconditional acceptance that God is good and God does good and God loves me and so forth. Now the question is why? I can tell you a story. A story I actually heard from the Rebbe of Blessed Memory. Bye for bringing The Rebbe told the story of the Baal Shem Tov. I heard the story before. But once the Rebbe said it, the Rebbe had an explanation to it. The Rebbe wasn't just telling a story. The story is that the Bashemta was traveling. And he ended up on an island. And all of a sudden, the Bashemta lost his entire power of prayer. 
his entire knowledge of Torah, and he didn't even know the Aleph piece. To the point where he had to tell the Gabbai who was with him to start teaching him Aleph base. And the guy was floored. <laughs> I'm teaching the Baal of Aleph base. And the Baal Shem Tev said, yeah, start. And he again started teaching the Baal Shem Tev Aleph base, Kalmetz Aleph O, going through process, building words, and slowly but surely, he was able to once again bring back the knowledge that eluded him previously. An interesting story. They have asked the question. There's a rule in Torah. We do not tell stories that causes shame or degradation to anyone. Why did this story, the Vashemtov, reach us? It is not an honorable story, the Vashemtov. Vashemtov, at his stage, to forget everything and to have to be taught Alabes by his Gabbai is not honorable. And the Rebbe went on to explain that there's one reason why this story is told to us. That we should know that sometimes we crash and that doesn't mean that we can't rebuild. There's a, a line I heard from one of my friends in the name of the Baba Sali. It says like this, the Baba Sali said, he who had will have but there's a condition if he doesn't lose the fight with him. So the Baba Sali has that approach. If your soul was rich once, then it means it has the capacity of being rich and has the destiny of being rich, it will be rich again. But yet we see so many times it doesn't happen. People are rich, crash, and never get back up. It's not because their soul can't do it. It's because they lost the fight or they're not willing to start over. Or they feel at this stage in life, I am not going back to knocking on doors. But if you don't lose that, then Baba Sali has a rule. He who has, will have. As long as you're willing to start over. And the Rebbe explained by the Fabrengen that that was the reason that the story was told to us. To know that it happened to the Baal Shem Tov. And if it happened once, it could happen again. You made it once to the top of the mountain, the second time is easier. You already know the connections. You know the routes. You just got to be willing to do it again. I'm bringing you the story of Hashem because I want to ask another question that the Rebbe seemed not to have asked. The Rebbe asked why the story of Hashem reaches you and I. It's not honorable to the Hashem And the Rebbe, the Rebbe answered by the Fabrengian that the reason why the story is told to us that we should have the power to know that this road of having to start over again has already been cut through for us. This, tra this, this path has been trampled upon. We don't have to worry. It's easier for us to go. The Baal did it already. We can follow his footsteps. But seemingly there's a question missing here in the equation. What the Rebbe didn't ask and what the Rebbe didn't explain was why should anyone have to go through that? Yeah. The Rebbe explained to me the reason why I heard that Rashemta went through it is to be able to empower me that if I am ever meant to go through it, I should know. It's already been done. The channels have been opened. The power lies here within this world. The Rashemta physically went through it and we know about it so we can follow his footsteps. But the Rebbe, back up a moment. 
answer me a previous question. Why should I have to ever go through it? Why should anyone ever have to go through it? Because if no one would go through it, the Bashanta wouldn't have to go through it, and we wouldn't have to know about it. We'd all be very happy. So the Rebbe is taking it for granted that we understand that in life this happens. And if it happens, we need to have someone that was salulet aderech. He already trampled through this path. We can follow in his footsteps. Let's question that. Why does it have to happen? To understand this, I want to take you to another dimension. In Tanya. Yeah, by the way, this is all about Garden of Amunah. Trust me, I'm not tricking you. <laughs> I didn't call it Garden of Amunah. Let me teach you Tanya. No, we're going to get to the topic here. I just want to give you a lot of background information so you can see how I'm going to enter into this Garden of Amunah subject of why won't God let me succeed? In Tanya, there are five books. The introduction to the second book is called Chinuch Katn. In Chinuch Katn, it starts with a very simple verse. Educate a child in his form so that when he gets older, he won't turn away from it. Right? And now, the question that Dr. Rebbe asks is, what is so great that when he grows up, he won't turn away from it? A child you teach in a child's way. Simply, the verse means that there's not one size fits all. Your father of two kids, you know that by now. <laughs> what works with one kid? You know, you have your first kid and you're all worried, and then finally you figure it out, and comes child number two, and none of the rules work with this child. It's on oh, who's not for the rule? Look at the child. Don't write a book. This is what works for all kids. Not. Every kid comes with a manual. But here, the Atarev is taking it a step further. The Atarev is saying that Chanoch Narapidaka means that there's a child's way of education, there's an adult's way of education. Teach a child in a child's way of education so that when he grows up, he won't turn away from it. But that doesn't make sense. Atarev, if you just told me this is a child's way, I want him to eventually take off the training wheels. So what's the greatness to tell me? Teach him how to ride bicycle with the training wheels so when he grows up, he'll have training wheels. I want him to drop the training wheels. I want him to move on. I don't want to talk to him always like a kid. I want him to grow up. I want to be able to discuss with him the whys. I want him to appreciate goodness for goodness sake. And not because you have to do it because you have to do it. And that's the Alter Rebbe's struggle in that little piece. And over there the Alter Rebbe quotes an amazing teaching. There's a verse that says, Shevo yipo tzadik vegam kom. Seven times a righteous man will fall and will rise back up. Here's where we're getting to where we need to get to. The definition of educating a child is with a muna which works hand in hand with obedience. I didn't ask you if you understand. I didn't ask you if you agree. I didn't ask you if you appreciate. I didn't ask you if you feel. I asked you for obedience. That's the way we educate a child. Yes, I know, political correct America, we're trying to explain the child. The child's a child, not an adult. Do not try to explain to him what an adult understands. A child understands, the Rambam says, reward and punishment. A child understands obedience. A child understands I need to do this because I need to do it. Why? Because I need to. So the education that we present to a child is obedience, which is the service formula of emuna. I want to say that again. Obedience is emuna in action. Please hear what I'm saying. Obedience is a muna in action. 
If I'm doing this because I understand it, it's not a Muna. If I'm doing it and I don't understand it, but I'm doing it because I have obedience, I have faith, faith acts out in obedience. Can you tell me why you did this? I don't know. What do you mean? Are you stupid? No. Then why'd you do it? Because I have a Muna. But you don't understand it. No, I have obedience. That's what a Muna is all about. If I knew why I'm doing it, then I don't believe. I understand. Knowledge and faith aren't one. I believe what I don't know. And once I know, I don't need to believe. I understand it. It's logical. It makes sense. It's reliable. So what we're hearing over here is that the chinuch you have to give to a child is obedience. Says King Solomon. Because when he grows up, he shouldn't turn away from it. One second. When he grows up, we don't want him to do it because of emuna. We want him to learn. We want him to understand. Ah, let's go to the second verse. Seven times a righteous man shall fall, and he shall rise up. And Al-Tanebbe talks about that from a mystical perspective. When you fall from level A, and you haven't yet reached level B, what do you have? You need to leave go of A to get to B. But there's that moment where you left A, and you haven't reached B. A great, great, great chassid, a blessed memory, a Mendel Futafas, sat in Siberia for the work he did. Underground, cheder, mikveh, all the good uh, crimes. And what happened was that at their, that place, when he was sent there, he spent many years there. And he befriended someone who was a political criminal. There was a whole group of circus, and this circus were considered political criminals. And he befriended one of them. And for whatever reason, Amanda Futavas told us that all of a sudden in the Lagada they decided that these guys can present a circus for the inmates, for the people that live there. She so went over to Amanda and said, Amanda, I know, Rabbi, I know that you're not come, coming to the circus. Can I ask you one favor? Can you please come to my act? You've always let me share, you've shared with me your wisdom. I want to share with you what I do. This is my kunz, my chachma. This is what I'm good at. Would you show up? Ramendal said, yeah, tell me what time your act is, I'll show up. Okay. After the circus, he finds Ramendal. He asks Ramendal, no, were you there? I told you I'd be there. I was there. No, did you see? Yeah. Did you like it? Yeah. And then he asked Ramendal. I heard you for Ramendal. He asked him, what is the most difficult part of that act? So let me tell you what his act was. He was a high wire walker. Ramendal said, I know what was the most difficult act. He says, really what? He says, you walk. You turn around and you walk back. The most difficult moment is the turning around. He looked at Amanda and smiled. He says, and why? He says, because that's the only time you lose focus on your destiny. As long as you have to walk 20 yards, but your eyes are on the pole, I need to get there. You're grounded. But that moment that you turn around, your eyes were off that pole and you haven't yet reached that pole. That is the hardest moment. Let's go back to what I'm saying. Sheva yipo tzadik v'gam kam. Seven times a righteous man will fall and he will rise up. And what that fall means is not that God forbid, oops, sorry. What it means is that between A and B there must be a fall. We have left go of A and you haven't yet reached B. The Altareb explains that that is what we're talking about.
Because when you leave A and you haven't yet reached B, what do you have? So let's talk about A and B. A and B is what? A is a perception of the tzaddik. His passion, his feelings, his paradigm. He thinks in the ways of God. That's what drove him. That's the soul and wings to everything he does. But now he needs to leave go of this consciousness. He needs to leave go of this passion. He needs to leave go of these emotions. Because now he needs to evolve into a far greater level. From A to B. You need to leave go of A to get to B. While the tzaddik is turning around in the high wire, what does he have? Go back to the verse. Educate the child so that when he grows up, he won't lose it. Because between A and B, between conscious, paradigm, passion, and the next level of passion, emotions, paradigm, all he has left is obedience. Thus you understand why King Solomon tells us, educate children with obedience. Because there's going to be a time where they're going to evolve from level A to level B. And in between the two, they won't have their passion. They won't have perception. They're going to need to fall back down on what? On obedience and amuna. So on level number one, there isn't that consciousness of amuna. Because they see, they understand, they feel, they're alive. In level number two, again, they don't need so much to rely on their amuna. But in between A and B, there's a strong necessity for obedience and amuna. And thus the story of the Bashem Tov. The Bashem Tov went from level A to B, and in between he didn't even know the Aleph base. And all he had then was emuna and obedience. He took the Siddur, gave it to his Gabai, and said, Teach me, what is that letter? It takes emuna and obedience for a man like the Bashem Tov to be able to start over from the Aleph base. I would say that that is even beyond the challenge of Abraham at the age of 99 to circumcise himself like a baby. Now let's go back to Garden of Amunah. Many, many answers are given in that little piece in the chapter. I want to get to you the underlying force. The underlying force. Why won't God let me succeed? What I'm going to present to you here is that between A and B is more godly than A and then B. But one second, I just told you that's a fall. The verse says, He's falling. And now I'm telling you, no, the fall is greater than the heights. Why? Because understanding and feeling is the works of a creation, the appreciation of a creation. It is finite. This is how much you understand. This is how much you can feel. Obedience, emuna, is infinite. It's the works of creator, not the works of creation. When it comes to believing, it's like being pregnant. You can't be a little bit pregnant. You either are or you're not. But everything else is different. He's so smart. He knows so many books. He has so much feelings in his davening. 
Not when it comes to faith. Faith is to be or not to be. Why? Because faith is infinite. Faith is the creator, not the creation. Our gift of faith is not a product of us. It's a product of the peace of God within us. Thus we understand that from going from A to B isn't a descent. It's actually an ascent. That moment where you've lost everything and have nothing but your faith in God, is that a descent or an ascent? I'm going to say that again. That moment that you've lost everything and you have nothing but faith, is that a descent or an ascent? There's a teaching of the second Lubavitcher Rebbe. He writes in a book as follows. Sometimes you find a couple that can't have children. They go to the doctors and it's not shot the doctor tells them there's something we can't fix. We don't see anything wrong. You've passed all the tests. She's passed all the tests. We don't know why you can't have kids. I don't know what to tell you. The myth that writes like this. Sometimes the only thing that the husband and wife needs in order to be able to have a kid is to give up hope. Wow. How did that come out of a Hasidic rabbi's mouth? This is the Rebbe, the middle of the Rebbe, the second of the Rebbe. He writes it clearly. He writes that sometimes the only thing the husband and wife need to do in order to have a child is to give up hope. The problem in this room is right now that we think hope and faith is synonymous. Hope and faith is not synonymous because hope needs to grab onto something. It needs a hook. Faith is when there's no hooks. Remember the story I told you before? In a previous class? Guys hanging onto a branch. God, help me, save me. Anything you say, I'll do. Really? Leave go of the branch. Why leave go of the branch? Because holding onto the branch gives you hope. Leaving go of the branch doesn't allow for hope. It needs faith. Hope and faith are not synonymous. Hope is the product of creation. Faith is the product of creator. If there is a physical reason to have hope, that's not faith. When there is no physical reason, when the doctor tells you bitterly, I can't help you, there's nothing wrong, it's in the hands of God. What happens now? Famous story of the Baditshiva. A woman asked the Baditshiva for help and Baditshiva couldn't help her. And she told the Baditshiva, you know what, if you're not going to help me, I'm going to dive into Hashem. The Baditshiva said, now I can help you. <laughs> now I can help you. I was in your way. You had hope because of me. Now you stopped having hope. Now you have faith. Oh, now let's talk. So between A and B is the beautiful absence of our arrogant fingerprints. Oh, I understand. I feel. I appreciate. I've just got this passion. You've noticed that every one of those sentences start with the word I? Because all of that is the fingerprint of creation. 
Sometimes what we only need to do is to leave go. And that's the Sheva Yippo Tzadik Vigam Kam. Why would the Tzadik fall? He was in such a beautiful paradigm, full of emotions. Every one of his words of prayer and Torah had amazing wings of love and fear and faith flying up. But it was all him. And now it's time to leave that and go to a higher level. Oops. What are we going to do in between those two levels? I'm going to talk to you in picture language. You probably heard this poem before, Footprints. Remember the poem Footprints? This guy's walking along the beach and he sees two set of footprints, him and God. And then at the end of life, he looks back, you know, to look over life. And all of a sudden he notices that in the most difficult moments of his life, there's only one set of footprints. And he turns to God and says, God, in my most difficult moments, you weren't by me. And God says, foolish child, those footprints you see are mine. I was carrying you at those moments. Do you see the difference between hope and faith? Hope is your footprints. Faith is God's footprints. Sorry? The Hebrew is not important right now. We'll do that afterwards, okay? I'm going to run a monologue now. And what happens over here is that in this relationship, we begin to appreciate that the moment of darkness is the moment of infinite omnipotence. The moment of light is finite. When I appreciate, when I understand, when I feel, that's light, but that's finite. When I lose everything and I have nothing left but faith, that's where finally my fingerprints, my, my footprints get out of the sand. There's only God's footprints. He's carrying me. Let's talk about why. Why won't God let me succeed? Most often I've found that the one reason why God won't let us succeed is because we think that we can handle it. Let me say that again. I had a woman once by one of my lectures in Weston about prayer. And she told me something which was very interesting to me. It was a whole lecture series about prayer, three-part series. And she told me, God, the rabbi... I don't pray to God for anything. I pray for other people. And I looked at her and I said, you must think that that is the most magnificent, beautiful, humble, selfless thing in the world. I said, do you know how arrogant that is? She looked at me, what are you talking about? I said, don't you get it? If I tell God I don't want to bother you, what does that mean? God, it's okay. You know what? I won't be big. I'll be small, but I can do that by myself. I don't want to bother you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Say those words again. I don't want to bother you. I can do this by myself. But you can be a hundred dollar near by yourself, but you need God for a million dollar near. You become a millionaire, I need God. But you know, I don't want to bother God. So I'll just settle for $10,000. That I can do by myself. I don't want to bother you, God. You're busy with other people. Don't worry. I'll take care of it, God. You follow what just happened there? Sometimes God won't let us succeed because we take that attitude. We take that attitude that I haven't worked out, God. Don't worry, I got it under control. 
Don't worry, you take care of the rest of the people. And then what happens is that our success becomes built on the arrogance of my mind and my heart rather than being built on the never, what I want to use the word, everlasting, reliable faith in God. The foundation cannot be, don't worry God, I went to college, I understand it's all your wisdom, but I learned and I got connections, I spoke to this guy, I met with that guy, I'm great at putting things together. Don't worry God, I got it under control, thank you. So sometimes God holds you back. Whoa, 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 Yingala, Yingala, come here. You really think you can do this by yourself? Don't you understand if it's man-made, it has a beginning and an end. Is that what you want? Or do we want to make it God-made? No beginning, no end. Reliable. So what I'm, what I'm suggesting here is that when we can't succeed, we better stop. Because when you put your head through the wall and you say, I don't get it. I did everything right. What didn't I do? Dotted my I's, crossed my T's, made connections, got investors, everything. It just doesn't make sense. God just doesn't like me. I have no mazal. Now stop. Is that what's going on? Or is the problem everything you just said? Is the problem that the word I was all over that sentence? Maybe God's telling you, I could let you do this. But then you'd be missing such an amazing relationship with me. Here an amazing teaching. Here an amazing teaching. In the Garden of Eden, God punished Adam, Eve, and the snake. And what was the snake's punishment? The snake's punishment was that his food would be the earth. Asked a great Hasidic Tzaddik, a great Rebbe asked, what kind of curse is that? Wherever he goes, he has his food. We people have to work and hide. But if we just said that his food will be the sand of the earth, wherever he goes, he has his food. That ain't a bad curse. Says the topic like this, what a horrible curse. He never has to turn to God. That's a curse. If you ask yourself, why won't God let me succeed? The answer most often would be, because I was so I, in a good way. I'm not being arrogant. I'm not telling God I don't need Him. But I really put all my eggs in the basket of my education, my connections, my talents, my hard work. My passion. And then Hashem says, we can go this way. But why settle for this? Why not make it only my footprints? Let me carry you. Of course I want you to work. Of course you're going to have to put all your knowledge and talents and everything you got into it. But that's not the foundation. The footprints need to be mine, says God. You're not ready yet. You want the footprints to be yours. It won't last. My footprints last. So understand that logic, passion, perception, hard work, it's all beautiful. But it's all human. With a beginning and an end. A capacity. Faith. 
faith is the one piece of God within me. That's God's footprints. And if God stops me, the doctor says everything is working. I don't understand. Everything is working. You, her, I don't get it. And now you have no choice but to stop hoping. Look up to Hashem. Have faith. Because mankind has no, no salvation to offer you. The doctor told you. By the way, does this person have to make another appointment with another doctor? Absolutely. There's breakthroughs in medicine day in and day out. I told you, don't use tikkun and faith to be reckless. Don't do that. Any faith or tikkun which creates reactivity is the Yetzirah. The faith and tikkun that creates proactivity, deeper proactivity. Now we're talking God. Now we're talking holiness. So of course he walks out of that office reading magazines, seeing when, new breakthroughs, of course. But deep down, he has the one thing he needed. He gave up hope. Hashem, it's in your hands. Now we're talking. Now whatever does happen will be everlasting. You ever stop to wonder? And I'm closing up here. After this, I need to talk about one more point, but I'm closing up here. You ever wonder a very weird story? Sarah can't have kids. Rebecca can't have kids. Rachel can't have kids. Leah, because God saw her suffering, okay, give her kids. That's what the verse says. I'm not making it up. <laughs> Read your chumash. That's weird. Humans are by mistake having kids. These guys are trying to have kids. Nothing happening. Different interpretations, true. I want to share with you one. God was telling them something. You see, you two holy people are about to bring a Jew into this world. That doesn't just happen when you get drunk and didn't use protection. You're bringing a Jew into this world. You guys are two holy tzaddikim. No, this isn't nature. That's not the type of nation I'm trying to build here. If Abraham and Sarah just to Mazel Tov, pregnant, next, 12 kids, 13 kids, just make it happen. Then we wouldn't be Am Yisrael Chai. We'd be a product of nature. If we're a product of nature, no nature can be Chai. God is Chai. So God pulls the plug. No, this isn't going to be biology 101. Come on, Abraham, Sarah, you know what to do. Everyone does it. Look after the dog. The dogs do it. They're just go make babies. God pulled the plug on them. Because you need to do something different. You need to create Am Yisrael Chai. Am Yisrael Chai is God's footprints, not human footprints. So all of a sudden, Abraham and Sarah are praying. Sarah has to go ahead and help another woman have a child so that she can be zoichet to have a child. Isaac and Rebecca sitting in two corners praying to God. Rachel praying to God. Why? Every creation in the world, from the fish to the birds to the animals to humans, everyone does have problems. They don't pray for kids. You just have kids. But if you can understand the secret here, you can understand why God pulled the plug on us. 
You speak with Abraham and Sarah, ask God, God, why won't you let me succeed? I want to have a child so I can bring him up in your ways. Why won't you let me succeed? I hope by now we're getting the answer. Because if God wouldn't have pulled the plug, it would have been an act of nature. If it wouldn't have been an act of nature, we wouldn't be here today to tell the story. Just like all the other nations came and went, like nature. But if we're going to go beyond nature, then we need a muna. We don't need the mind, the heart of the human. That's the second and third story. We need a foundation. The foundation is a muna. That's where we pick our feet off the ground and allow God's footprints to handle the situation. That is why God won't allow me to succeed. Because I still want it to be me. But once I can leave go, once I can pray, once I can give up hope and just have faith in God, now we're on a different platform. But you understand that after God promised Abraham and Isaac a baby, they did what other fathers and mothers do to have babies. They didn't say, oh, we're out of this picture. It's God. You'll see one morning in the barn. It'll just be there. Because a moon is the footprint upon which we need to work and think and make it happen. God's not here to destroy nature. God just wants us as Jews to know that for us, the footprints in which nature lies is Amuna. It's God. It's obedience. It's absolute. It's divinity. Now go to college. Now study. Now use your brains. Now go out there and hit the pavement. Now make connections. Now use your talents that God gave you. But first, we need to pull the plug. First, we need to allow for a Muna to settle in. That's why God didn't let Abraham and Sarah have kids, didn't let Isaac and Rivka have kids, didn't let Jacob and Rachel have kids, and only because Leah was suffering, God said she suffered enough. She understands it's about me and not about her. Let her have her kids. That's why you and I keep on banging into walls. Because we keep on davening in the morning. We're all believers. But then we walk out thinking, and now let's make it happen. We need to stop. We need to give up hope. We really need to allow it to be God's footprints. And then go out and make it happen. That's it, guys. Faith and belief, I think, are synonymous, at least for the way we talk. Hope. Hope needs a hook to hang on. But I don't think, I, I, I'm not dissecting here the difference between belief and faith. For tonight, I mean, I didn't even look it up, so I wouldn't be able to answer you that. But for tonight, we're going to call it synonymous. I did want to not make synonymous hope and <coughs> It's interesting because that joke I told you about and God said let him buy a ticket. Once he buys a ticket, he has hope. Not buying a ticket would be faith. But that would be a faith that God doesn't want. We need to make vessels. But not hope. Faith. And from faith, go on into creating a hook. You can have hope. And then go find deeper talents that God gave you. 
and go find your connections and make the right phone calls and do the right things. But the footprints, the footprints can't even be hope. The footprint needs to be absolute faith. That's the Chanoch Nanara Pidarko. Yeah, I would say so. Go ahead. So based on what you're saying, or at least my understanding, our history as a Jewish people, uh, you know, has been basically, you know, it's, we went through a lot uh, and still do, you know, a lot of disasters, calamities, and hardships. Is that God's way of building our Amunah? Tonight's class wasn't that that's God's way of building our Amunah. It was the other way around. It's because we would go through this, Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and Rebecca, and Sarah, and Rachel, and Nosoleia, had to have children which would define nature. That's what we were talking about today. I just wanted, I just wanted to clarify where I was coming from. I hear your question. I just want to clarify where we came from. Which leads you into your question. Right. But what I was saying until now was that because we would need to be infinite, because we would need to be invincible, therefore it couldn't just be man, woman, make a baby. God pulls the plug, brings them into faith, the footprints of infinite, and then now go create a nation. Now you're asking another question. The other question you're asking basically is how we're handling today's lecture. God pulls the plug on us so that we can reconnect with the child, pure level of connection, the footprints of God. So yes. You know, I'm going to use this metaphor, if you don't mind. There are reflectors on the road when we start veering off the road. It wakes us up. Bum, 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 bum. You can look at it that way. When we start forgetting about the footprints of God, and we start again with the fingerprints of, wow, look what I did. I am a genius. So every once in a while we hit those reflecting bumpers, like bump, 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 bump. Okay, I got the message, God. Okay, okay. And get back into line. Sure. I mean, even, you know, on a more you know, general level, not just, you know, specifically I, but as a nation, when, and you see it, you see it every day. You know, when we try to assimilate, when we try to become, you know, part of the, the larger picture, the rest of the world, you know, it, it doesn't seem to work. You know, they always tend to single you out. You know, you're different. No matter how much you want to be part of the rest, you're always set, you know, you're different. And again, I always looked at that as his way of showing us or telling us you are different. Don't try to be like the rest of them. And we try, throughout history, we tried so much to be like the rest, but he always brought us back to who we are, who we really are from the very beginning. I want to add on something to that. I want to add on just one point. That's a beautiful point you make. <clears throat> but I want to add on that if you look at Nobel Prize, you'll find that Jewish people were never allowed to just be different. You see, that's the fit on the roof scene. You gotta be at the point of the roof and play your fiddle. See, if God just told us, I want you guys to be different. I don't want you guys involved. I don't want you guys engaging with. Just go back to the desert. I'll send you the clouds. Mana will be arriving every morning on time. 
That would be one type of life. See, but the challenge of the Jew is that God demands of us to be super successful in technology, medical, financial, everything. But the fingerprints of us need to be replaced with the footprints of God. So God's not telling you, you don't get it yet, you're different, you don't belong in medical school. No. God's telling you, go to medical school. Remember, you're different. God wants us in the forefront of human achievements. But, take away your fingerprints and have the footprints of God. That's what I meant. You just said it better. That's why I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> Anyone else? How do, you, how do you get the ego out of the way then? How do you get the ego out of the way? <laughs> I knew the answer to that question. You know, there's an interesting story to tell. They tell a story that uh, they asked about Shem Tov, how do we know who's your successor? And Boshantov said, whoever will be able to give you the answer to this question, how do you get ego out of the way? They looked at Boshantov and said, but how would we know if he gave us the right answer? And Boshantov said, the answer is that there is no way. Every morning you've got to pray. Just pray that you can get your ego out of the way. Because ego, not in a bad way. We're not talking about narcissistic. We're just talking about egocentric, survival. Is the genetic composition of all creations. And then God blows the soul in your nostrils and tells you, I hear how I made the shell, but now I want you to see the light. And we'll always be struggling between those two paradigms because they're both real to us. The paradigm of our body is very real, egocentric. I need to eat up something else for me to survive. I mean, we can go on forever. Animal rights movement, and then there's the fruits rights movement, and there's the grass rights movement. I mean, who are we to destroy anything for our survival? But that's just the way God created the world. And then introduce that there's something beyond egocentric, which is theocentric. With that being said, I'd like to give you at least one story that you can meditate upon to deal with ego. Story was told to me by a very, very great man. He should live and be well, Rabbi Khan. He told me an interesting story once by Fabringen. He said that in Israel, there was this simple Jew that came over to him and asked him a question. And the question was as follows. Why do all the great mashpiyim, the great mentors, hide when they daven? That was the question. If you know the way the system works, in Far Chabad, for example, in the yeshiva, Rab Mendel Futafas used to sit by davening and then go into his room. We knew which was Rab Mendel's room, and there he davened by himself for hours. And this was normal. Chassidim would hide. There was another Chassid in the fifth generation who would go into an attic and meditate and daven there for hours. So he asked, why? Why do you have to hide? Why can't you daven right here so everyone can see you daven? Obviously the answer is ego. It's very hard to daven. Because people are noticing that you're davening. And you're noticing that they're noticing that you're noticing that it's, it's a problem. So he said, but one second. 
The problem isn't that I see you davening. The problem is that my seeing you daven affects you. So what is hiding going to take care of? If the problem was that I see you, then you hid. You took care of the problem. But the problem isn't my seeing you. On the contrary, if I see you daven like a mensch, I'll be inspired to daven a little better. So the problem is that you're affected by my seeing you. So what's hiding going to help? That was his question. Abiel asked him, so what should a guy do? He doesn't want to be affected. You're right, hiding doesn't take care of the problem. But what should he do? And a man, Abiel, told me like this. He told him that he looked at him and said in Yiddish, Rise up. You're being affected? Don't be affected. How can you not be affected? Rise up your paradigm. Instead of thinking that he's looking at you, Think that Hashem's looking at you. A higher paradigm. Your king's looking at you. You're not worried no more that other guys are looking at you. So to answer your question, it's redirect your paradigm. Instead of your paradigm being that you're looking or feeling that other humans are looking at you, just rise up. The more you realize that you stand in front of God, the more the ego melts away. It's a, it's a stronger focus. It's not easy. We're so used to feeling eyes on our back. We're not used to feeling the eye who sees and the ear who hears. So to answer your question, a meditation to help with the ego is to remember the simple ABCs of Shulchan Aruch. Shaviti Hashem tamid. To always know that I stand before God. So if I stand before God and God's looking at me, I wouldn't even feel that Joe Schmo was looking at me. Just a story that I remind myself when you told me you asked the questions, I shared it with you. You know, it's from concept to concept. I think I shared this with you once. My kids are challenged when they dive in here because they're sitting in the front, so they have to turn around and see what's going on, and you know. And Everyone thinks it's cute to talk to the rabbi's kids in the middle of davening, and I can't scream at them, so I have to scream at my kids, and whatever. It's, okay. it's all part of being a rabbi's son. So I told my son once. I told him, I'll tell you what I do. I learned this when I was in school. Just build a bubble around yourself. They're outside of the bubble, and you're inside the bubble. So when you get married, it's easier. Put the towels on top of your head and finish. You have a physical bubble. But that's what happens. And if you look in Tanya, that's what Al-Tarebbe says. When the person next to you is talking, you don't want to hear his conversation, but you can't help hearing his conversation, so you have a choice now. Be pulled into him or dig deeper into yourself. That's the bubble. Same thing with the ego. Redirect your paradigm. It's not easy. I told you this before. I told the whole class this before. The Rebbe said by Febrengen, human nature is so difficult that you do a mitzvah and you hide when you do it because no one's supposed to see you. And you're praying that someone should see you that not only you did it, you even hate when you did it. <laughs> it's not easy. That's the genetics of, of, our, of, our, of our making. But then we have a neshama. We have a neshama. And sometimes... 
The answer is, I gave a class on this once before in the Garden of Amuna. The answer is, shh, I don't want to hear you right now. You know when you think about something and you don't want to think about it, and you turn on the radio to some good music and you put it loud, you shouldn't be able to think, you shouldn't hear your thoughts? Let's do that with our egocentrism. Sometimes turn on the radio. I just don't want to hear that thought right now. I'm not going to argue, I'm not engaging, I'm not going to spar with you. I just don't want to hear it right now. And that's where you leave go of hope and fall into faith. Making sense? Any questions? Good guys.